Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can find our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today, Kristen, we are talking about dihydrogen monoxide. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, water. We're talking about water. Today's a water episode. Shaking my water bottle for dramatic effect. Thank you. Who needs a soundboard? (laughs) (laughs) Kristen, water is a big topic. You warned me beforehand. You were like, Kyler, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to talk about specifically? Because water is everything. It covers some massive amount of the planet. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of like industries and... Well, you know what? Let's just get into it. Kristen, what's water? Can you tell me what water is? Um, It is 70% of us. That's true. That is a fun fact. Water, Kristen, and just in, in case you wanted to know like more details about it, water is a tasteless and odorless compound made up of hydrogen and oxygen existing in gaseous, liquid, and solid states. As a liquid at room temperature, it can dissolve many other substances, and its versatility as a solvent is essential to living organisms. Life is believed to have originated in the world's oceans, and living organisms depend on aqueous solutions such as blood and digestive juices for biological processes. Water also exists on other planets and moons, both within and beyond the solar system. In small quantities, water appears colorless, but it has an intrinsic blue color caused by slight absorption of light at red wavelengths. So there you go. Now you know what water is, Kristen. You're welcome. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) 32 years in. (laughs) Kristen, what's the history of water? Uh, (laughs) Does not water predate history? (laughs) Yeah, water is a byproduct of star formation. So So if we want to talk about the history of water, we're really talking about the history of the universe. It's been observed as far as 12 billion light years away, which means that, like, basically since as long as the known universe has been around, water has also been around in theory. Which, like, makes sense. Hydrogen and oxygen are some of the most common elements in the universe. But that doesn't mean that water is always easy to come by. It's been found a few places within our galaxy, but getting it from those places is, like, pretty difficult. So for now, we're stuck with the water we have on our planet, although I'm sure Elon Musk is working on that. I was going to say Bezos is installing, like, Amazon warehouses. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for now, it would probably cost more water to go get it than we would get bringing it back. But I'm sure that's a problem that the billionaires of the world are working on. (laughs) (laughs) Boy. We're not sure yet how we have so much water. Did you know that, Kristen? We don't know how Earth has so much water. I didn't know that. Early Earth was too hot to have formed with water present, so water came after. There are theories that asteroids or comets, which are known to have water, probably brought our first little sips, but we don't really know which, we don't know when, and we don't know how many events it took to get us all of the water that we have, because we have a fuckload. We have a lot of water. (laughs) We have a lot of water that we're not protecting very well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that people are aware of. So, well, we'll get into it. Kristen, why is water even important? Why should we care about protecting it? I feel like these answers are are so obvious that it's it's hard to even say them. But I mean, we need water to live. Uh, that is one really good reason. Also, <laughs> like the oceans are the lungs of the planet. So. <laughs> 
We need it to live in two senses at least. Thank you, Kristen. That does clarify it for me. I really appreciate you and your... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know you're right. Water is kind of a big deal. Water is literally vital to all known life forms on Earth, especially. Um, We don't really know of a lot of life forms outside of Earth, but theories suggest that it's probably important to them too. It has a lot of really unique properties, just in case people are like, I don't know how many people will be listening to this, like, water, what makes it so special? I'll tell you, just in case you're wondering, (laughs) it's unusual for chemical entities to be less dense in their solid form, so the fact that ice floats is kind of wild, which is something I'd forgotten, but then, you know, you sit and think about it, and you're like, oh yeah, the fact that ice floats is bonkers, like, (laughs) solid anything else, like, sinks. It's not how you're supposed to work, water. (laughs) (laughs) This is important because... Ice that forms on ponds and lakes in cold areas of the world acts as an insulating barrier that protects the aquatic life below. But if ice were denser, it would sink and more of the water would be exposed to cold air until like the whole pond froze and all of the life forms present would die. So it's kind of cool that water can stay liquid underneath ice. It's also super dangerous if you're in Canada and you decide to go for a little lake walk, but you know. You learn as a child not to do that. Oh, you just got to do like the stomp test. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Please follow regular guidelines. Don't listen to me. <laughs> oh, my God. When I was a tour guide in 2019 and 2020, I went to Lake Louise a bunch of times in the winter. And there were signs everywhere that were like, do not walk on the water, thin ice. And of course, every single tourist there was just like walking out in the water. And I was horrified. And I was like, I had a busload of like, teenagers. And I was like, if I catch any of you on that water, you're going to wish that you sank in it. (laughs) (laughs) And then like a week later, yeah, somebody fell through the ice. And I was like, you see? (laughs) Did you ever have to do... So I used to be a swim teacher. It was like my job through high school and um, undergrad. And did you ever have to do that like ice training exercise where like you'd climb over the foam? No. Oh, so fun. Uh, But... (laughs) But it was it was basically a way to, to train people that you, you want to be as, like, horizontal as possible when you're climbing out of the ice. Oh, that's scary. Yes. Yeah, well, in a pool, it's very fun. You're on top of foam. <laughs> it's nice and warm. <laughs> in practice, though, if you ever had to actually utilize that skill, what a horrific thing to experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about gaseous water or water vapor, I suppose, is the more common term. <laughs> This episode's already way more science-y than any of our previous ones. <laughs> I'm, I just love this stuff. I think it's great. And we're going to get into some more depressing stuff later. So let's have fun now. <laughs> so when water becomes vapor, it gets transported through the atmosphere from the oceans inland where it condenses and, as rain, nourishes plant and animal life. It's called the water cycle, Kristen. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> I sure have. <laughs> There are a lot of like actually really cool sciencey reasons that water is unique. I won't get into them anymore. I feel like I've covered the basics, but there'll be a link in the notes if anyone wants to, you know, rekindle their love of water. It's stuff that we all learned in high school, but it's fun to revisit and be reminded of just how nifty water molecules are. <laughs> They're pretty great. This is a water appreciation podcast. It really is. Water is great, and I don't think we like appreciate it as much as we should. So like 
Not only is water a major building block in the structure of life, but it also plays a huge role in human religion, philosophy, and culture, and probably in animal religion, philosophy, and culture, because the more I learn about animals, the more complex their systems are, and the more likely they are to have these things too, in their own way. Like, Kristen, have you seen how much bigger a whale's brain is than a person's? Like, <laughs> holy shit, of course they have complex systems and they probably care about water. Yes, also squid. Very smart. Yeah, and water, If just in case I haven't convinced anyone that, like, if you're still sitting there like, meh, water, who cares? Well, Mr. Grumpy Pants, it's essential to the world economy. So if you care about that kind of thing, you should care about water. From transportation to recreation to agriculture to fishing to heating and cooling homes to cooking and cleaning to industrial processes, you literally cannot live or make money without water. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever met someone who would say, like, water is only valuable as an, env an, an environmental tool. But if you're out there, I guess it's important to remind you that, like, water is important to capitalism, too. I mean, insofar as we're all, like, part of an ecology, you can think about water mostly being environmental and still include its benefits for us. Yeah. Water is such a fascinating thing that we haven't, like, this is something that encompasses literally every aspect of what it is to be on the planet Earth. <laughs> like, <laughs> And it's something that I don't think we, like, I don't know if I don't appreciate it as much as, as I should be. Like, I'm really appreciating it thanks to this, like, research that I was doing. So thank you for indulging me, Kristen. Uh, <laughs> we're, re we're ready to move on to why we're talking about it today. Nice. So Kristen, how much water is there? On the planet. I have no idea. I have no idea. A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a lot. We're like a huge percentage of the earth is covered in water, but only two and a half percent of the water on earth is fresh. And of that tiny number, 70% of it is frozen for now. 30% <laughs> is groundwater. And 1.2% is surface water like rivers, lakes, and atmospheric moisture. The water crisis that we're experiencing exists because we don't have that much usable water to begin with, and we're using it at a much faster rate than the systems of the planet can replenish. We're losing water to pollution, inefficient agricultural systems, household use, and industry. So we're going to explore that today. Kristen, do you ever eat food? Sometimes. <laughs> what about wearing clothes? Do you wear clothes? Yes. What about electricity? Do you ever, do you ever use electricity? Yes, and uh, Ontario gets a lot of its power from hydro. Ooh, BC too. Well, do you ever spend money? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, quite often, actually. So great. Um, all of that is part of your water footprint. When you think of a water footprint, Kristen, well, I mean, I, you're probably a bad person to ask because you probably know exactly what a water footprint is. But what do you think most people think of when they think of a water footprint? Well, I think a lot of people focus on the direct water footprint. So like flushing a toilet, taking baths. I'm really bad. I love baths. I take a lot of Oh my of God, baths are so great. I know. No shade to anybody. If you, if you are capable of taking a bath, take one today. Treat yourself. Yes. And I also like to say, because we often don't think about the indirect water footprint that, of all the things we consume. So I often like to say, because I don't eat steaks... <laughs> That buys me a couple more baths than I would otherwise be able to have. I mean, that's absolutely true. So the direct water footprint that you're talking about, stuff that you see, like when you see water basically passing in front of your eyes in the kitchen, bathroom, garden, wherever, that only accounts for a small fraction of daily water consumption. Most of where we're, it's coming from in our water footprint is from our indirect or virtual water footprint. And most of that is from the food that we're eating and the clothes that we're wearing specifically. But 
other things too. Well, and also like coffee cups and various things like that that we throw away often without even thinking about it. Kristen, spoiler alert. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I love that. Get out of my brain. We're going to talk about coffee in a second. <laughs> I knew you would like that example, so it's in here. <laughs> so the average global citizen will use between 1,500 liters and 10,000 liters a day, depending on where they live and what they eat. Can you maybe contextualize that for, for me in terms of like how much of that overall footprint is direct versus indirect? Yeah, so... My personal footprint is probably sitting around 5,000 liters a day, but my direct footprint is probably sitting at around 300 liters a day. So that's a big difference. Like I'm seeing about 300 liters pass in front of me a day max. That's like an upper limit for me. But my total footprint is sitting closer to that 5,000 liters a day limit. And that's because of all of the indirect ways that I'm using it. So is it fair to say then if we're talking about saving water, yes, we can do things like have low flow toilets and take shorter showers. But the biggest impact we have is in terms of like the stuff we buy where it might not be as obvious what water looks like in that process. Yes, 1000% and the things we eat. So if you're a vegetarian, take that bath, treat yourself. (laughs) So an Olympic swimming pool, which Kristen probably knows very well, holds two and a half million liters So I'm personally consuming a swimming pool every year and a half. And I'm a fairly modest consumer, to be honest. In one day in Vancouver, we use 360 million liters of water. So Kristen, where is all of this water going specifically? Give me the percentages. Just kidding, I have them, I'll tell you. I mean, can I guess? Yes, please. Okay. So how much do you think is used at the household slash domestic level? Well, okay, based on what you had said, I'm going to guess it's about somewhere between 5 and 10%. Yeah, 11%. Yeah. Nice. How much do you think is used by just general industry, not including agriculture? Ooh, 25%. Damn, it's 19%. Very close. Oh, man, overestimated that a little. So that means that the rest, 70%, all of that is being used by the agricultural industry. That's wild. Yeah, it's huge, right? (laughs) Wow, 70%. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk more more about that in a second. But I wanted to share first that of the world's major aquifers, which are gravel and sand-filled underground reservoirs, 21 out of 37 are receding right now. So this is a problem that we are facing uh, from India and China to the United States and France. The Ganges Basin in India is depleting due to population and irrigation demands by an estimated six centimeters every year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it's a fuckload. Yeah. Um, can I can I ask a straw man question? Yes, please. <laughs> but, but Canada has so much water. Surely we're fine. Oh, Kristen. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're going to talk about Canada. I promise you that. So a little, little teaser for later in the episode. We're not okay. <laughs> <laughs> but first I want to talk about California, which suffered its worst drought in 1,200 years from 2011 to 2016. And then in the first three months of 2017, They got 228% more rain than it usually gets, thanks to climate change, our friend. Uh, Lake Oroville in the northern part of the state swung from about 41% of capacity to 101% in just two months, causing dams to be overwhelmed and 188,000 local residents to be evacuated. Yeah, the California droughts are very personally important for me. 
uh, because romaine lettuce is now $10. What the fuck? Oh my God, you sent me a picture of that and I, I couldn't believe it. And then cabbage was like a dollar. And I'm like, I guess we're just eating cabbage from now on. That's legitimately, I've been surviving off of cabbage. Uh, it's just, I love romaine. It's my favorite lettuce. People who know me personally know that I take various salad greens super seriously. <laughs> romaine is my favorite. It's just a classic. You, you can't knock it. But uh, it is way too expensive to justify right now. So it has been green cabbage for me <laughs> for the last couple months. Which is fine, but it's fine in a way where it's like, it's your silver medal. <laughs> yeah, like you can feed yourself for a month off of like a $2 head of cabbage. But do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about agriculture now because obviously 70% of the water that we have access to being used for agriculture is like wild. And of that 70%, this is like this is where statistics get a little confusing, but of the water that we're using for agriculture, 60% of that is being wasted through leaky irrigation systems, inefficient application methods, or cultivation of crops that are too thirsty for their environment, California. Well, I mean, that's kind of a good news story, isn't it? Because that means we can actually change things. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity to fix that and people are working on it. So yes, absolutely 100%. That would be a huge success and and it is something that like we are working on. But like that number being what it is right now in 2022 is kind of a bummer considering we've known that this is a problem for like 50 years. <laughs> Listen, Kyla, if we solved <laughs> problems within 50 years on this planet, <laughs> In Canada specifically, 83% of the water that we use in agriculture is not returned to its original source. So that's something that we could definitely be working on as well. Okay, so does that mean like when we're using wastewater, it's getting dumped into other bodies of water? Or what, what, does, that, what does that mean? It's hard because there's like the statistics are so big on this. And I was like, oh, this water's so much. I don't want to dig into one thing too deep. Although I did go down quite a few rabbit holes, <laughs> as you saw earlier in the show. But I think they're talking about specifically the food to feed and grow one cow uses a million liters a year, and she drinks a thousand liters a year. So when you factor in the farmhouse, the transportation, the process for slaughter, it can take three million liters of water to produce a 200 kilogram boneless beef slab. So a 300 gram steak costs 5,000 liters of water, which is like my daily if I were to have one steak, that's my whole water limit for the day. So I think that's where that number is coming from. Like, you can't return the water if a cow has eaten it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. So, like, that water may come from a local water source, but it's, you know, it's running off if it's being being put into, like, irrigation. Or if a cow is ingesting it, then maybe it sort of feeds into other parts of the environment. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So like you're pulling from a local water source and then that water source isn't being replenished essentially. And we could fix that a little bit by solving like the leaky irrigation problem and treating our runoff water and like having more circular systems, but right now it's kind of a, a straight out nothing back in situation. We're not we're not doing anything circular, which is not like true of all farms. I'm sure that there's lots of like small farms that are extremely circular because it's very good for business. But the big the big ones are, you know, the ones where we have to worry about. Yeah. And I'll maybe just highlight a problem that maybe you won't get to just because it's this is such a big topic already. But 
It's a problem when you don't have that sort of treated runoff because a lot of the times it ends up in like the oceans and it creates ocean dead zones that kill, I can't even tell you how many fish. Yeah. It's not just that we're losing freshwater, although that's super important as well, but we're killing ecosystems off the coasts as well. Yeah, we absolutely are. And it's not even just off the coasts. A lot of the time, the pollution from fertilizers and pesticides affects water that's just like chilling in the environment, minding its own business because <laughs> they, they, they leach into underground aquifers. But Kristen, maybe you're a vegetarian. Let's think about a cup of coffee. <laughs> determined to ruin my day, aren't you? Look, Kristen, these are solvable problems. Don't stop drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that coffee that you're drinking is from Guatemala. I don't know. Where's the coffee that you're drinking from? The coffee that I'm drinking is from Ethiopia. Nice. Okay. So we've got coffee from Ethiopia. We've got sugar from Brazil, maybe. Maybe Canada. Maybe you've got some Rogers sugar. Oh, I don't sweeten my coffee. <laughs> oh. Ooh. Okay. Well, for our listener then, some sugar from Brazil. Maybe maybe you're having like a little like a little latte morning and it's you've got some vanilla from Madagascar in there. You've got some cream from a Canadian cow or a Canadian oats farm. You pop that in a disposable cup that was produced in China and that one cup of coffee is consuming and potentially polluting water sources around the world. So irrigated agriculture represents 20% of the total cultivated land and contributes 40% of the total food produced worldwide. So it's like it's hella productive, but it's also like hella thirsty. And as climate change makes growing seasons less predictable, more agriculture is on track to need more irrigation systems. Due to population growth, urbanization, and climate change, competition for water resources is expected to increase with a particular impact on agriculture. Population is expected to increase to over 10 billion by 2050, and whether urban or rural, this population will need food and fiber to meet its basic needs. Combined with the increased consumption of calories and more complex foods, which accompanies income growth in the developing world, it is estimated that agricultural production will need to expand by approximately 70% by 2050. And don't worry, we are going to talk about the population argument. That was a quote I was reading. We are going to talk about that in a bit because that's fucked. But also, it's true that they're estimating that agricultural production will need to expand by approximately 70% by 2050. That's pretty um, pretty problematic because even if you took that, like, you said it was something like half of water use was being wasted um, in agriculture. Even if you solved that, agriculture is still growing by enough of a, a scale to to totally override that. And and one would imagine that like of the half that's like avoidable waste, probably some of it's really expensive to to divert. Oh, totally. So like overall, that means like drastically more water is gonna be used from agriculture. I mean, yes, although I'm pretty sure that this is estimates based on current agricultural practices. And in order to, like, we'll talk about solutions later, but like my my personal opinion is that if we focused on more localized food production, like if every building had to have a garden, you know what I mean? Then that would probably solve a lot of that issue. But, you know, based on what how we're running agriculture now, yeah, it's not looking good. So big ag is our number one culprit, but other industries have a hand in polluting and diminishing clean water supply as well. Industrial water is used for fabricating, processing, washing, diluting, cooling, and transporting products. It's used in smelting facilities, petroleum refineries, and industries that produce chemical products and paper. That's a lot, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So 
I want to talk specifically about fracking uh, because I think that's a really good industry example of like how water is being used. And it's just one industry. Um, but Kristen, do you know how the hydraulic fracking industry works? I th- is the idea not that you like fracture shale in a way that releases natural gas? Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's when you take water, sand, and chemicals, and you inject them at high pressure into shale and other tight rock formations, and it releases the fuel inside. And that's how you get natural gas. It's also a great way to make salty, radioactive water filled with toxic metal. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) While a lot of this water is reused in the process, I think 70% in a Pennsylvania extraction site, for example, a lot of it is still disposed of either by pumping it into deep wells, which causes the occasional earthquake, no big deal, or by treating it (laughs) at special facilities. Unfortunately, many of these like specialty facilities are terrible at their jobs and have incurred fines for failure to meet the Clean Water Act or other regulatory standards. So, yeah, we should do like an episode at some point on the decline of regulation because honestly, there are so many problems that could be solved if we just like forced corporations to actually follow the law. I know, right? <laughs> That's like the story of water is like we None of the problems that I'm going to talk about today are unsolvable or, like, almost everything. That's what's so frustrating about this story is almost everything we're going to talk about is a, a policy failure or a failure of will. And it almost makes it worse. <laughs> but I do want to circle back to that, like, population argument that we were talking about earlier. It wasn't really an argument. It was just, like, a statement of facts. But I, I didn't want to just say that and leave it untouched because, and I know this will probably not be news to our listeners, but... It's still somehow a huge talking point. While population growth is certainly putting pressure on our water systems, it's because we're using water so inefficiently and polluting so recklessly. Malthusian discussions of limiting population growth are looking at the problem as a quantity issue when really we're having a quality issue. Canada, a country with a tiny population of 38 million people, uses more water per capita than almost any other country in the world. I'm guessing that's, um, Kyla, I'm guessing that stat isn't only personal use, but also includes like industrial and agricultural waste? It does. Um, I'm not going to include percentages on that because even at a personal level, we're using more water than most people on the planet. I I just ask because I remember our very first episode, we had had some questions about like solid waste and Canada also ranked worst in the world at that. But that was only when you included like industrial and agricultural processes. When it comes to like what individuals are using, the waste was less. So like if you look at the Canadian context, the problem we really have is that we need we need to have those industrial and agricultural systems sort of like deal with their waste problems better. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's not like to shame the average Canadian, although certainly the average Canadian probably uses more water than people in poorer countries. So like when you factor in the industrial processes, like we're we're up there. We're we're up there. We're in the top three or five, depending on what you're looking at. But like specifically, I want to call out personal water use because before we talk about population control, let's talk about like who is using these resources. Because the poorer a person is, the less access they have to clean water. And since 1950, the population has doubled, but water consumption has increased sixfold. So 
like you and you and I know, Kristen, that the problem with this, this population is too much argument is that like low income countries use eight percent of their water for industry, while high income countries use up to sixty percent. So like, yeah, it's our personal use and it's our industrial use. And so before we start talking about like population control, maybe we should like look at our own glass house before throwing s- some stones, you know? Yeah, and also like, I mean, I don't know the water stats specifically, but if you look at other kinds of resource usage, you can also pinpoint like global inequality, right? Like the top 1%, 10% of earners use way more than anybody else. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know how much water it takes to run a jet from one Starbucks to another, but we could ask Drake about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. We're using a lot of water. Canadians, like... Sorry, sorry to my listeners who are Canadian. Um, you don't need to sh- like shame yourself for taking a bath. We have a lot of water, and most of it is being used by industry. So if we got that under control, then it would be okay that we're using more than the average person. But a lot of it is coming from like food waste as well, right? Like we're going to talk about that in a minute too. But why is this even an issue? Like water is a renewable resource. So like, couldn't we just reuse the water that we're that we're 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 working our th- way through, Kristen? I mean, yeah, certainly seems like we could. Yeah, we absolutely could, 100%. If we were not locking it away or poisoning it, in 2017, 80% of all wastewater was returned to the environment without being treated. Cool. That's from, that's from a, that's a UNESCO uh, statistic, so I, like, I fully trust that one. So this is a problem. Um, (laughs) The world is rapidly running out of water that we can safely use. Already 1.1 billion people lack access to clean water and 2.7 billion people experience water scarcity for at least one month a year. Inadequate sanitation is a huge factor in deaths from diarrhea globally, which is the fifth leading cause of death in children worldwide. Have you ever experienced water rationing, Kyla? No, I haven't actually personally ever experienced it. Have you? Um, Not in, like, a very significant way, uh, but occasionally, like, where where my family grew up, there would be water advisories, and I think that's, like, sort of the lowest level of rationing that there can be, but it was basically like, yo, stop watering your lawns, you dummies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I guess I'm not thinking about that sort of, like, or when your water is shut off for a day or two because they're doing, like, upgrades or something. Well, that's, I mean, that's different because it's not about scarcity as much as, um, like, a repair, but, like, specifically because there's a drought watch. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, our friend climate change is on track to make this worse uh, by altering weather patterns and causing droughts and floods. So, spot on, Kristen. (laughs) And floods, wow, that sounds great. I mean, Kristen, would you drink the water from your flooded basement, or do you drink from puddles on the street? You definitely should not drink water from your flooded basement. It's super (laughs) bad for you. (laughs) Or what about the water that's been mixed with local wastewater facilities because of sewage overflow? Would you drink that? So, no, guys, flooding is not a solution to our problem. Well, and also, when you have flooding, like, the local soil can't absorb it, and so it's more likely to sort of run off in ways that aren't helpful for conserving water in the long time, in the long run, right? Yeah, exactly. So Kristen, I know what you're thinking. Why can't we just make more water? Oh, I wasn't thinking that because I, you and I both had <laughs> desalinated water and it tastes terrible. <laughs> it's greasy somehow. I don't understand that. <laughs> Great question, Kristen. Thank you for asking. <laughs> 
in theory, we could make more water. Hydrogen and oxygen are extremely, like, <laughs> abundant in the universe and on the planet. And I don't know if you remember this, Kristen, from high school chemistry class. I had forgotten. But by themselves, hydrogen and oxygen, like, separately, extremely flammable. So... Together, it's kind of funny that we are, it's what we use to put out fires. You know, you put oxygen and hydrogen, <laughs> t- hydrogen together and suddenly it's like the number one way that we stop explosions. But I don't know, science is wild. So there's some more science facts for you. Just dropped in in the middle of the episode just to shake things up a bit. What was the name of that blimp that like famously... The Hindenburg, uh, a blimp filled with hydrogen that exploded so massively in 1937 that 160 metric tons of water were produced. <laughs> That, that blimp, is that the one you're thinking about? I sure do. <laughs> it also killed 36 people, but uh, the water produced, you know, not drinkable. No, it was full of uh, fuel and chemicals and debris. So, cool. But in theory, yeah, we could, like, explode oxygen and hydrogen together to make water. That's how you make water is by making explosions. Thank you, stars. Um But to safely make enough drinkable water to ease shortages, we would first need to purify hydrogen and oxygen sources, which in theory we could do, but it would be very expensive. Um, But then, yeah, we would have to just make explosions, like huge explosions to make more water. And we haven't really been bothering with that. I'm sure science is working on it. Well, and also don't explosions release like a large amount of CO2? I think you're right because like CO2 is just carbon and oxygen. I guess there's no carbon in, in water. So you would have to do it in a, in a way where there was no carbon in that space as well. I don't know. I've read The Martian. I, I understand science. <laughs> <laughs> I guess ultimately no is the answer. No, we can't just make more water. <laughs> Although maybe one day, I mean, who knows? Uh, fusion reactions are getting pretty good. So maybe water creation. I did not imagine that I would be Googling hydrogen and oxygen explosion to try to figure out if it's bad for climate change. <laughs> So, Kristen, tell me, how is pollution still a problem? Don't we have water treatment systems? Couldn't we just do a water world and turn our pee into drinking water? Yeah, I mean, I honestly have always kind of been in favor of that, like, at a systems level, you know? <laughs> not just in your house. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that, like, myself. But, like, it does it does seem as though we should be able to treat water. So maybe, like, we're not drinking the same water that we peed, but maybe we're using it for cleaning or something like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the more I read into this, the more I was in favor of, like, I would drink pee water. The technology is great. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. That's awesome. That makes me really happy. Yeah, like, we have the technology, we have the capability to purify water, and while every city is different, Vancouver is testing its treated wastewater before releasing it into the Fraser River and or the Salish Sea, which... I mean, that's a bad example because, like, those places are already so polluted that that's, like, not a circular way of using water at all. It just means that we're not, like, (laughs) making them more polluted. But, like, those specific examples, like, they're already – the Salish Sea is salty, first of all, so you can't drink it. And Vancouver is a huge shipping hub, which means that pollutants from boats destroy any good that we got from treating the water in the first place, really. You can't swim in False Creek at the heart of Vancouver because of sewage overflow, runoff water, and boat waste. But conservation is working on it. You know, where maybe in my lifetime I could swim at False Creek or not judge people who I do see swimming there. And I'm like, ugh, get out of there. But I actually have some like good news stories. Um, I wanted to share that local example because Vancouver specifically is like touting itself as like, we're going to be the greenest city in the world by 2025 or whatever. But it's like, we are not there yet. Kind of seems like Oslo is going to beat them. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, or a lot of other places, honestly. Tel Aviv yes. recycles water from sources that include household sewage and uses it to supply over 40% of its agricultural water needs. Okay, that, that I mean, I don't know that Israel like gets a, a hooray for that because probably pretty provoked by necessity, but that's still good. Yeah, I find that that is a good news story because it shows what can be done when we have to, you know? Yeah. I do want to I do want to shout out Israel a little bit more on this because their water treatment system recaptures 86% of the water that goes down the drain. Wow. Yeah. The next best performer is Spain, which recycles 19%. So like Israel is a, like far ahead of other places in this game. They're also a global leader in desalination, which is of course turning seawater into potable drinking water. Over half of Israel's drinking water now comes from desalination. Oh, just so gross, Kyla. <laughs> I know. It's but I mean, you know, I I'm sure it will improve. So here's the thing, right? Is Israel is treating water availability as a national security issue, which it is, obviously. You can't have people if you don't have water. And all of those numbers that I just read were from 2016. So like it might have improved since then even. Or gotten worse, who knows. It certainly shows that there's like a very vast area of possibility that the rest of the world could you know, leap into. Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. <laughs> Desalination isn't an ideal solution for all the water problems, not just because Kristen thinks it tastes like shit, but <laughs> but also because it's five to seven times more expensive for one. And like, it really fucks with marine ecosystems for another, like when the concentration of salt in the area goes up. Coca-Cola, uh, our friends, Coca-Cola, you know, environmental <laughs> stewards who... <laughs> <laughs> who we really loved were sponsoring COP, weirdly. Um, they claim to use desalination at 30 coastal plants, but even they admit that it's not a great solution. Just treating already desalinated water is much more cost-effective and better for the environment than desalinating water. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's good news, I guess. Good to know that it's more economical to treat the water that we have. Yeah. I mean, if if we are desperate, then we can, I guess, take water from the oceans. But I feel like that is just creating more problems than it solves. <laughs> uh, Los Angeles is planning to recycle all of its wastewater by 2035. This process is called DPR, direct potable reuse. It's hard and expensive. And even when you can do it, there's that societal hurdle of getting people over like the ick factor. Plus, it still needs to be regulated and made legal, which is a slow burn. But there's been some cool happenings. Uh, San Diego had a small advanced purification facility from 2009 to 2013 that successfully demonstrated that DPR can treat sewage water to safe drinking standards. And in El Paso, they ran a demonstration facility in 2016 that was so successful that they're creating a large facility that should be finished by 2026 and producing as much as 38 million liters of water a day. 96% of the people who visited the demonstration site in El Paso said that they're supportive of the city's DPR plans. So I guess the water tastes pretty good. That's awesome. It is a little bit unnerving as well. Like the, the places you mentioned are all already facing some pretty severe droughts. So I hope that's not what it takes for these kinds of processes to be adopted everywhere. But it's really great to hear that they're happening and that they're working. Yeah. And I, I think what is happening, I hope, is that places that have no choice are coming up with the technology and showing that it, like, it can work. And then places that are a little less desperate can adopt those things before it becomes an issue for them, you know? Yeah, once um, maybe it becomes a normal practice, 
in some places, it'll be easier for other places to get over those hurdles. Yeah, I mean, Los Angeles is opening a demonstration facility by 2025 um, after they legal after California legalizes DPR and finalizes regulations by the end of uh, 2023, so like next year. It's weird to me that it wouldn't have been legal before. I know, right? I think that's like that's what I'm saying when I'm like this whole thing is a policy failure. Like we have the technology, it's just that there hasn't been the political will to make it okay to do. I've got I've got a question. I don't know if, like how much you looked into these rules and it's totally okay if you didn't because there's so many themes. But like is this a situation where like Alec or some other right-wing think tank preemptively banned something that would be good for the environment? Or is it more like there were laws that made this illegal because during a period of American and like Western history generally, we were just dumping sewage into rivers and they were lighting on fire? Probably the second one, although I wouldn't okay. <laughs> I wouldn't discount the first one. I don't know the answer to that. I I assumed um, that it was because we were being so irresponsible with our wastewater that we had to regulate it really heavily. And now we have to like backtrack on that because we have the technology to make it so that it's safe. But I mean, maybe a right-wing think tank had something to do with it too. Who knows? Probably cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it is interesting because then it kind of... Um, it kind of seems similar to the problem of animal testing in the same kind of way, right? That you have a set of laws that were created to achieve a very laudable public objective, but it just makes it difficult as technology advances because this very like laudable purpose is the basis of the law. It becomes kind of difficult to, to sort of peel back those laws and come up with ones that work for the technology of the 21st century. Yeah. And I mean, I am kind of okay with that being the issue. Like, I wouldn't mind if the water I'm drinking from sewage is heavily regulated. (laughs) Yep. Seems like a good thing. (laughs) There are just, like, such low trust in water quality. It Like, it's really appalling. And I think it is worse in, in America than it is here. But you see, like, these videos of people online like only drinking bottled water. And it, it, I think, has something to do with a lack of trust in like the tap water being safe. So yeah, I'm totally with you that the regulations need to be amazing and really well enforced in water. I think the what the cities are doing by putting up demonstration facilities is really showing like, like we, we want to earn your trust. So I think, I honestly think they're going about this the right way. I just wish they'd started 10 years ago. Sure. That's my only note, Los Angeles. Start in the past. <laughs> but good job for, look. Also deal with your road issues. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places in Canada and in the United States where clean drinking water isn't available. Like, I mean, obviously, the most famous example is Flint, Michigan, right? Although, like, the boil water advisories. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, like, just to finish up this little section of, like, what, like, technology we have that could be used to fix this, there are, like, some interesting things being done with, like, harvesting water straight out of the air that I don't know if I'm, like, a fan of because... It feels like it would, like, mess with the the water systems more. So if anybody, like, decides – I'll share articles on this. But if anyone decides they want to read more about, like, harvesting fog or condensation units or windmill atmospheric collection, like, hit me up on – maybe not Twitter. I'm on Instagram or TikTok. And let me know <laughs> what you think about it because it's fascinating. But another solution, uh, very high-tech – It's called literally just catching the rain, which is something that a lot of cities, including Melbourne, um, have been doing that 
like to some degree of success. Melbourne has a stormwater tank that can store 4 million liters of partially treated water. And Kerala, Bermuda, and the U.S. Virgin Islands are requiring all new buildings to include water, like rainwater harvesting. Singapore met up to 30% of its water needs through rain capture. Um, I think it was in last year or the year before. So, like, cities are using rain capture as well. There's a lot of solutions to this problem. Like, there's a, and, like, we should be using all of them. Yeah, and I mean, that seems like something that we've done, I would assume, for, like, thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, like, put a bucket outside, you know? So, like, yes, recycling, desalinating, capturing water, it's all extremely possible. The question isn't, you know, can we do it? It's really, will we be able to adapt fast enough? So knowing that policy and money and some level of research is really all that's standing in the way makes the fact that Canada hasn't been providing clean drinking water to all of its residents even more frustrating. It's not, it's not a question of possibility. It's a question of will. So in October of last year, Kristen, you might remember the story, Iqaluit, Canada's northernmost capital city up in Nunavut, was placed under a local state of emergency when fuel was found in the tap water. That's right, yeah. Do you know when that got fixed? Oh, I just assumed it hadn't been fixed. <laughs> I mean, it's been sort of fixed. They've been experiencing boil water advisories off and on all year. And in January, there was like more fuel detected in the water. The most recent emergency water shutdown was in October. But I think they actually are OK for their water right now. But yeah, it's an on again, off again issue, which means that like residents, like if I was there, I wouldn't trust the water. I would just be drinking bottled water or, imp- or like, like, of course. Yeah, of course. In 2015, Canada had 105 long-term drinking water advisories, and the Trudeau government pledged to end them all. That was part of their campaign when they uh, were elected in 2015. So presently, there are still 31 long-term advisories remaining, mostly in Ontario, weirdly, which is like, you'd think they'd take care of those first, but whatever. Each advisory means up to 5,000 people are without clean drinking water and have to boil or, in some cases, buy water that has been shipped in. In some of these places, they have not had clean water for decades. And that's just the long-term advisories. There are short-term advisories as well. Three days ago from the time of this recording, on December 1st, 2022, there were 32 short-term advisories on. So while progress has been made in seven years, like, it's been great. Like, like 105 to 31, that's not nothing. But it should never have been an issue to begin with because in 1876, the federal government introduced the Indian Act, which is... I'll put a link to a book that y'all can read. It's called 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. It's very short. Everyone should read it. It's really an important piece of literature. If you don't have the capacity, The Secret Life of Canada has also done an episode about the Indian Act, and you should really learn more. But it's important here because under the Act, the government is responsible for building and upkeep of infrastructure on First Nations reserves for water treatment plants and delivery pipes, which it has obviously not been doing a great job of historically. So. Yes, we can treat water, but Canada is one of the most water-wealthy countries on the planet, and even we can't get clean water to all of our citizens. So, like, this is this is a localized example of a global problem. Yeah, and it seems like you would especially, I mean, you, you want there to be clean water everywhere, that there are populations, but it seems like it would be most critical in places where it's a real pain to ship stuff in. You don't want to have to be trucking in water from elsewhere. No, and we're going to talk about like the bottled water industry uh, shortly, as well as water privatization. 
So um, buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. I mean, you know what? I thought it would be worse than it is. But before we get there, I want to ask you, Kristen, since we have solutions on the horizon, um, do we need to worry? Should we should we just is that the end of this episode? Is that is that like problem solved? I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> what? How did you know? <laughs> I want to talk about wetlands briefly. Wetlands are some of the most productive habitats on the planet. They support mammals, birds, fish, insects, and a huge variety of plants. They support the cultivation of rice, which half of the people on the planet rely on as a staple source of food. There's rice on my desk right now waiting to be eaten. They provide protection from storms, control flooding, act as natural water filtration systems, and they make people happy. It's nice to walk around in nature. Fight me. They make puppies happy, too. Puppies love wetlands. Oh, my goodness, yes. They make everyone happy. Wetlands are great. So listeners might be sad to hear that more than half of the world's wetlands have disappeared since 1900. Well, and right now, the Ontario government is trying to build in the Greenbelt, which is, a lot of it is protected wetland. So, like, in addition to destroying those really important ecosystems, I mean, the houses that are going to be built on there are going to be at greater risk of flooding. It's really not good. No. Um, that's all I want to say about wetlands. I don't want to hang on around too much on it. I know our listeners will understand the gravity of that. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Aral Sea, which, Kristen, you've mentioned in previous episodes, and I didn't ask about it at the time because I was like, oh, I should probably already know. And I didn't. So I learned about the Aral Sea for this episode, and it was a bummer. Yeah, the Aral Sea comes up in way too many for episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about it, like, because like, usually we talk about it as, like, a little aside thing, like, as an example of, like, you know, X, Y, or Z. But specifically, listener, the Aral Sea used to be the fourth largest freshwater lake in the world just chilling between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. But in 30 years, irrigation projects shrunk it by 60%. Um, or I Googled this, an area the size of Romania. I tried to find like a like a good comparison that people would know because it was like one place was like, oh, it's the size of Michigan. I'm like, I don't know how big Michigan is. I can kind of picture how big Romania is though. <laughs> the rapid shrinking has resulted in the concentration of salt and minerals increasing to the point that it's considered a body of salt water now. So like, yikes. In the 1960s, the fishing industry on the Aral Sea employed 60,000 people, and in the early 1980s, the commercial fishing industry had vanished. So in 20 years, 60,000 jobs just disappeared because the Aral Sea had basically lost all its fish. The growing season in the area is shorter because the moderating effects of the water have been lost, and the climate has changed drastically in the area. Strong winds picking up exposed soil from the lake bed reduce the local air quality and deposit salt-heavy particles on arable land, which degrades the soil further and makes crops even harder to grow, which means that crops have to be flushed with more river water, and the whole thing is just like a huge snowball effect. So the water that's left, in addition to being salty as fuck, which I would be too if I was the RLC, is, pol <laughs> thank you, is polluted with fertilizers, chemicals, and pesticides. This is a very localized look at what's in store for the rest of us if we don't rapidly take this shit seriously. Yeah, I mean, we can look at all kinds of industrial processes, but like if companies are allowed to leave water bodies poisoned, it's a problem that impacts communities for decades. And not just communities in the local area. This has affected like countries. This has affected multiple countries in the region. So... When we're talking about water shortages, 
I want to talk about Canada specifically, um, and I want to give an example of a podcast that people should listen to, which is 2050 Degrees of Change. It's from the CBC. Oh, is this the one that was just canceled? No, no. That was that was a Gimlet Media production called How to Save a Planet, and I'm I'm shook. I'm so upset. They <laughs> don't you go listen to their back catalog in, in, in support. But anyways, no, 2050 Degrees of Change is a six-episode series that the CBC put out a few years ago, um, focusing specifically on how climate change would affect BC. So like if you're in BC, I really recommend you listen to this. But honestly, globally, you should listen to this because it just gives local examples of how chain, like small changes are going to affect one place. And it's like, n- then magnify that, right? It explores how the world will adapt to climate change within a couple of decades, and they do an episode on snow and ice that talks about the downstream effects of record low snowpacks, melting glaciers, and rising sea levels in British Columbia. And it is grim. Basically, even if we have a lot of water, like, fucking up the system it exists within fucks us too. So... Particularly with BC and snowpack, if we get less snow and more rain, which climate change is likely to make a thing, then the water we do get would be more likely to run off the land rather than slowly melt as it does when it's snow. So it's going to really affect the forests um, in in our province badly. But beyond that, all three of the prairie provinces... Hi, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, I see you, (laughs) are vulnerable to drought, which you might recognize as a problem since that's where all of our food comes from. (laughs) Yeah, Alberta's going to be hit really hard uh, because they rely on glaciers as a huge source of their provincial water and the glaciers are disappearing. The Yukon and the Northwest Territories will also see drier winters and will be more likely to experience drought. Northern parts of Ontario and Quebec could have their forests threatened due to elevated risk of forest fires because of drier seasons. And if you're in Atlantic Canada and you're listening and and you're like, ooh, a drought, that sounds great, you'll be sorry to hear that you're actually likely to get more rain if that's possible. <laughs> climate change just makes everything worse. Like, whatever the worst parts of your climate are, it's going to get worse because of climate change. Ugh. Yeah, it's such a bummer. Speaking of bummers, let's talk about privatization. You mean freedom, Kyla. Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> so I put privatization and like bottled water into this same section because I, I kind of in my head put them together in my brain where I was like, well, if you're buying water from a corporation, then it's private. But there's actually two, like there's two separate things when you're talking about whether like a local water facility has been privatized and is run by a private company versus like buying water from Nestle or Danone or Aquafina. Because I kind of put them in my head together, I'm going to talk about the bottled water industry first, which I'm torn on because so many places need access to clean water that don't currently have it. And so, like, bottled water is important and a thing that should continue to exist until everyone has clean water. But it's not a thing that people are using that way. Like, a lot of the bottled water people are drinking is, they could just be drinking tap water. A lot of times... People are drinking bottled water just because there's no readily available vessel for tap water. Yeah. And so they need to buy a bottle. Yeah, exactly. Or like you're just out, you're out on a day and you're like, oh, I didn't bring a bottle, a, a water bottle. I'll just buy bottled water. Or you, you buy bottled water when you're at the gym. Like it's just a thing that people do. And we got to stop doing that, you guys. <laughs> so like, Kristen, when you think of Nestle, do they, do you think of like an eco-friendly, healthy hydration company that's aiming to save the world's <laughs> fresh water supply? Because that's how they describe themselves, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that. It's also a job creator that invests locally 
uh, in mis- municipalities. So no, no problems there. We're going to just move on now. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> You're causing me like PTSD from undergrad when there was a pro-Nestle candidate for president of the university. Oh, fascinating. Everybody was upset. Yeah, it was a whole thing. It's complicated. Obviously, I'm going to come down on the side of like, Nestle, stop what you're doing. But like, yeah, arguments could be made for the other side and I can see how they could be convincing. Here's my opinion. (laughs) By 2016, bottled water sales had surpassed soda as the largest U.S. beverage category with Americans consuming 50 billion liters that year. In 2021, it was 56 billion liters. So it's only getting worse. Uh, People are only drinking more bottled water. In 2016, Nestle bought the Middlebrook Well on the edge of Elora, Ontario, despite the local township attempting to buy it themselves to safeguard water for residents and future generations. Under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, governments are required to obtain free prior and informed consent from Indigenous peoples for water projects, which it did not do in this case. Um, as far as I can tell, I'm maybe I'm being a little bit harsh. I couldn't, I looked, I very, I looked, I, looks like they didn't. And specifically, people might remember like a meme a few years ago going around of the CEO of Nestle, Brabeck Letmath, uh, where like he apparently called the idea that water is a human right, like water is not a human right. And that's not like necessarily true. I found on Snopes. Uh, what he said instead was uh, the idea that water is a human right is extreme. And he said that in what? a 2005. <laughs> yeah, he said that in a 2005 documentary called We Feed the World. I'm going to read exactly word for word what he said. So you you guys can take your take what you want from this. Water is, of course, the most important raw material we have today in the world. It's a question of whether we should privatize the normal water supply for the population. And there are two different opinions on the matter. The one opinion, which I think is extreme, is represented by the NGOs who bang on about declaring water a public right. That means that as a human being, you should have a right to water. That's an extreme solution. The other view says that water is a foodstuff like any other, and like any other foodstuff, it should have a market value. Personally, I believe it's better to give a foodstuff a value so that we all, we're all aware it has a price, and then that one should take specific measures for the part of the population that has no access to this water. And there are many different possibilities there. That's like so dystopian. If you if you gave that quote and showed it to like an industrialist from like a cotton factory in the 1800s, they would be like, that's fucked up, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, so obviously he got a little pushback on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he clarified his statement several times since then. Also, food should maybe also be a human right. Agree. I would. I would like. Maybe that's a. Maybe that's a strong opinion, Kristen. But I do agree with you on that. He did clarify. He did clarify. Um, he said uh, obviously it was uh, uh, monstrous uh, to be taken out of context, and what he actually meant was that the water you need for survival is a human right and must be made available to everyone wherever they are, even if they cannot afford to pay for it. However, I do also believe that water has a value. People using the water piped into their home to irrigate their lawn or wash their car should be, bear the cost of the infrastructure needed to supply it. It's like, mm, is that what you were saying in the last one, though? <laughs> yeah, that was not what he was saying. But it is a good point that, I mean, I don't necessarily think that it should be something that is priced for the everyday user. But I think at like high water usages, um, there should be some kind of regulation. I mean, there there are in municipalities for, I mean, Ottawa is weird. It's like a flat rate. It's very strange. But 
there should be some kind of tool to incentivize judicious water use as long as it doesn't like interfere with basic needs, I think. Yeah. It's just that coming from the mouth of the Nestle CEO, it feels a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little disingenuous, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nestle loves going into economically depressed areas with lax water laws and paying nearly nothing for it while leaving those areas water strapped and polluted. <laughs> I'll link to these. I'm not this episode's long enough. Trust me when I say, like, Nestle's not the gold standard, but they're also like a big player in the industry and they they've come under a flack so i'm like calling them out specifically on their own website they say so like take this with a grain of salt that they use 0.001 percent of the total fresh water drawn worldwide in bc where i live they use uh, apparently 0.01 percent of groundwater which is a very specific thing to say <laughs> in ontario it's apparently 0.6 percent they're saying it takes about 1.2 liters of water to deliver one liter of drinking water. But again, that's according to their own numbers. So who knows how they're calculating that? Yeah, they're probably not including the water used to create the plastic packaging. Or or they're only including that and not including the water used to transport it or run their facility. I don't know, you know. Yeah. But like they're comparing it to like soft drinks where they're like, oh, a liter of soft drinks like uses three liters of water to produce and 42 liters of water is used to produce one liter of beer and 183 liters of water is used to produce one eight ounce glass of milk. And I was like, okay, I mean, sure, guys. <laughs> I feel like that's beside that, that. That's kind of like a, uh, what about ism, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, especially since water could just be coming out of the taps, but whatever, you know what? I'm, I'm biased. I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> As earthpolicy.org put it, more than 17 million barrels of oil are required to produce enough plastic water bottles to meet America's annual demand for bottled water. So let's talk yeah. about that maybe, Nestle, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> <Let's>... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just Nestle. They're worth $7.8 billion. That's their like gross annual sales. Um, it's a number that I saw flowing around. They, they get special attention because of their operations in Canada, but they're only the third largest bottled water company in the world after Danone and Tingy. Okay, but they are like a massive food company, so... Yeah, yeah they're, I think they're the biggest food company in the world and the third largest bottled water company. Yeah, I think any of the companies in the food oligopoly club don't get a pass for criticism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I want to talk about like actual privatization now, which peaked in the 90s, and that's when um, cash-strapped governments will lean on corporations to help maintain and repair municipal water treatment and delivery systems that were built decades ago and are in shoddy shape. Yeah, the 90s, when the public-private partnership was something that we thought was a good thing because capitalism had just won. <laughs> ah, yes. Unfortunately, Water privatization was not a silver bullet, I know, surprise, as it, it often resulted in inefficiency, corruption, increased yes. costs. I know, yes. I know, I know. It led to further marginalization of people with low incomes, especially in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, this is fascinating, I actually didn't know this, or maybe I did and I forgot, but like, Britain became the first and only country to privatize its entire water industry, thanks to our friend Margaret Thatcher. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and it's still like that. I was trying to find like up I was like I, I was like that's cr that's wild. I saw that in like uh I think it was the World Bank or a Guardian article or something like that and I was like I have to fact check that. So I I looked it up more and I was like, "Oh, this is true." That and it is apparently still happening. I was trying to find like a 2022 piece, but I guess it's not interesting enough for people to write about because it's just been <laughs> going on for so long. But like 
Yeah, the companies that still own the water in Britain today like to remind folks of what they stepped into when they bought the industry for like $7 billion. After decades of government underinvestment, water quality was poor, rivers were polluted, and our beaches were badly affected by sewage. The water industry was not high on ministers' list of priorities, which is shitty and terrible, and I can see where they're coming from, but that doesn't mean that what they've done since or that privatizing it was a solution, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, maybe we should just prioritize water. I don't know. I'm going to link to a really interesting article that quotes, like, a bunch of different experts in the area on how they feel about the privatization of Britain's water specifically. But basically, it's still underinvested in despite prices skyrocketing and shareholders and key people in the industry making boatloads of money. And the government is still paying for a lot of the infrastructure, of course, because that's how it works when you privatize this stuff. <laughs> like, I don't think it's as much of an issue now as it was in the 90s. It's still happening because governments are still, like, desperate uh, for money and to get their water to citizens. And it seems like on the surface a really good solution to, like, outsource it. But it's it's not. It's not. Don't do it, guys. <laughs> Stop. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I can see a world in which the privatization of water as like a utility could be bounded by enough regulation that it wouldn't be super harmful. In the same way that like if you have really well regulated energy utilities, like I I mean, obviously think that having public goods be public utilities is better. Um, but you can have like less acute harms if government really pays attention to it. Yeah, like that's the thing, right? And then if government is paying that much attention to it, why not just tax people more, especially rich people, and then <laughs> and then maintain it yourselves? Like, <laughs> yeah, oh well. I, I Like I said, this is my bias. Kristen, we've reached the end. We're going to talk about what we can do about this. <laughs> this is where I'm going to get bathtub shamed, aren't I? No, please. <laughs> listen, baths are not the problem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is what I'm going to continue to tell myself as I search for a place where I can have a bathtub again because I miss it so desperately. Mm -hmm. Especially in the winter, it's nice. Oh, what a treat. Well, I mean, we could start by implementing water recycling systems that we already have on a larger scale and have circular water in our cities. Do you know, did you see the stats for any Canadian cities and how much water we recycle? So in Edmonton, uh, Epcor.com is saying, we have two water treatment plants in Edmonton, E.L. Smith and Rossdale. These facilities allow us to produce an average of 350 million liters of treated water every day. We store this water in 12 reservoirs, totaling around 800 million liters. We then deliver it to thousands of local customers as well as to surrounding communities at seven supply points. So I guess they are recycling their water. I don't know where that water is being used specifically, but... I mean, that's kind of cool. Good job, Edmonton. I mean, if you are just sending it to be used in industry, then I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're halfway there. As, as soon as they get off of the petroleum industry, then they can just start reusing that water for other things, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like this, we, we don't know enough about it. Like maybe a, a wastewater expert in Edmonton is listening to this and you can please like inform us more on it. But yeah, most, most of the time cities are not like, they could be doing more uh, when it comes to the recycling system. So like that's something that we could do pretty much right away. Um, it would cost money, but it would be worth it in my opinion. We could use water more efficiently in the agriculture uh, industry and in other industries as well. Governments could create legislation to promote product transparency. As always, companies should be disclosing their water footprint. I'm sure most probably don't even know what it is. 
We could identify new water resources, but that's kind of like a finite band-aid solution. As I mentioned earlier, I'm sure Elon Musk has plans to harvest water from asteroids, but unless there's a huge improvement to the way we run our space industry, that it's going to be some time before we can do that. Governments could be working with trade partners to ensure sustainable goods are imported and exported. I mean, we say this every time. They should be doing that for everything. They could be working towards international agreements on maximum sustainable water footprint limits. We could set maximum sustainable limits for consumption and pollution in river basins and aquifers. Cities could start planning for scarcity in advance, which a lot of them are doing now. And on an individual level, we could change our behavior to just, like, Consider the value of the water before we consume something that we don't need. Yeah, I would love to see water footprint labeling. I don't know how you would do that in practice, because it would need to go on pretty much everything. But it would just be nice to have some way of normalizing awareness of how much water goes into producing that plastic bag that you're going to throw away in 10 seconds, or the like... The coffee cup you maybe could do without and you could sit in or the leather boots that maybe you're going to buy because you really love them, but you'd appreciate them more knowing the resources that went in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could solve the wild amount of food waste that we create. We've done an episode on this that I'll link to, but I think we talked about how like 30% of food is just wasted. So that's a huge amount of water that's being wasted, like (laughs) water that we need. Every time we throw away something that we like could have used in some other way, we're we're wasting water, we're wasting energy, we're wasting renewable and non-renewable resources. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is something that I think we've learned a lot on this podcast in general over the last three years, Kristen. It's just like everything's interconnected in a way that I wasn't seeing. Like I knew it, but I wasn't seeing it the way that I'm seeing it now. Yeah. Actually, this might be like a a good time to have a bit of a reflection because we're at episode 100 now. Oh, yeah. Happy 100th episode. (laughs) I mean, I knew that going in and then I forgot to start the episode with that. (laughs) Yep. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Happy 100th episode, everyone. What is, I'm curious, Kyla, I'll put you on the spot here. What is your favorite moment from our podcast so far? You know what, Kristen, my favorite moment, it's It's two moments, and it was two times where we got to record together. So the Pets episode, I just had such a a great time talking about something that I loved, and it was our first episode where we were in the same room, and it was just so much fun, and people really responded well to that one. So I really liked that. And also, when we recorded the Halloween spooktacular with Robbie in your basement. (laughs) (laughs) And there's the three of us in the same room together telling, like, ghost stories that we'd written. I think that I think those are my top two moments. What about you? I think for me, I really enjoyed researching for the Monopolies episode. I think that was one of the episodes I enjoyed researching the most. But I'll also shout out our year-end episodes because those are always so fun to record and the guests that we bring on are always so charming. So I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, we've got some really great guests. I I I don't want to announce them now in case anyone has to cancel last minute, but you guys should be stoked. They're going to be great. Yeah. As always, you can also support local organizations that are making an effort on this. There's lots of grassroots places that are trying to push back on especially water privatization. Um, But if you want to support a bigger organization, I'm a huge fan of the World Wildlife Fund, which promotes water stewardship, protects wetlands, and puts forward ways that we can adapt to climate change. So that's a good big one. Um, But check out your local ones. That's always the best way to go. 
So there's also, if you're living in Ontario, you can make your voice heard about the proposal in Bill 23 to build in the Green Belt, which goes against the electoral promise that Doug Ford made when he was running for premier. The 30-day consultation period ends today when we're recording this, so it'll be sort of too late for you to do it through the official platform. Um, But during that, like now that it will have closed by the end of today, the government will have to sort of decide how to proceed. And so it's a really good time if you're in Ontario to write your MPP, um, write the premier, tell them tell them that you care about protecting the green belt and that long-term access to water ma- matters to you, that saving like communities from flooding happens like is something that you care about. Now's the time to act before it's too late. Thank you. I love that. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for joining us on our 100th episode, everybody. Um, It was a little bit of a long one, but it's also one that we've been meaning to do and just kind of putting off for like three years. (laughs) So I'm really excited to finally have it out. And I learned a lot personally. Me too. Especially about the science of water. And I really hope everyone joins us on episode 101, which is going to be our New Year's Eve quiz. And it's going to be great. It'll be very fun. Those episodes always are. You can try to do the quiz yourself. um, And if you don't want to do that, you can just listen to our fabulous guests, who will be a surprise, answering questions and then talking about ethical issues that happen throughout the year. Yay. We'll catch you guys then. Thanks for listening.